Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Welcome to today's episode. Today I want to talk about a theological issue that is the problem of evil. Now, this comes up all the time. In fact, every Bible study I've ever been in, uh, pretty much every group of friends I've had, which might say a lot about my friends, this subject always seems to come up. And that's not surprising because evil is so prevalent in the world around us. I mean, you can't live long at all without having something bad happen to you or to someone else. And so when we think about evil and suffering, we need to think about it rightly. We need to think about it biblically. And I think we can summarize this whole concept into two general categories. I think that we need to think about it from a pastoral point of view and an apologetic point of view. Pastoral would be with believers. Apologetic would be with, with non-believers. So let's, let's break this down. <clears throat> First, let's think about it from a pastoral perspective. People ask the question, how can a loving God allow evil in general? But when it happens to them, they ask the question, how can God allow this? If God loves me, how can he allow this? And, and that's, that's a hard question. And it's, it's difficult, especially going through the difficulty. I mean, you have the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, you have the loss of friends, uh, loss of job, you know, uh, paralysis, any kind of illness or things like that. It's just there are devastating things that happen in life. So how are we to think about those things? How are we to re- respond to people in, in the church that we know who deal with those issues? That, that's important to understand. And it's different than how you would say thinking through it with an unbeliever who's just challenging God. So from a pastoral perspective, which really is just another way of saying from a, from an emotional perspective, from a caring perspective, the first thing that, that I often have to remind myself about and uh, encourage other people to do is not to play the exhaustive theologian. You know, don't, don't play exhaustive theologian with them. And what I mean by that is, is don't try to, uh, dot every I, cross every T. Don't try to convince them of every theological doctrine which could help them while they're in the moment of suffering. You know, when people are going through a difficult time, it's, it's not the moment to, you know, play theological doctrine, um, instructor. You know, Romans 12 gives great direction on this. You rejoice with those who rejoice and you weep with those who weep. There is a time where sometimes just hugging someone and telling them you love them is the best thing to do. And that might, that might be the case for weeks, maybe even months, because some things are devastating that way. And comfort is, is really a biblical concept. And that is uh, something that Christians are uniquely qualified to provide. And now that doesn't mean that you can't give answers or something like that. Um, some people, and, and I've met with people who, who even asked me, well, 
Remind me again of the fact that God's in control. Remind me again of the fact that God is sovereign. And so we go through that. Um, and that's a comfort to them, but sometimes people just, just are in mourning and that's, that's okay. That's okay. That's, that's biblical in the sense that God has designed us to, to be emotional beings. And so very rarely would you ever want to just launch into a theological treatise on the subject of God's sovereignty with somebody. Granted, that's a really important doctrine for people to understand and it can give them comfort, but very rarely in the moment is that the right thing to do. So don't, don't be the exhaustive theologian. Uh, second thing I would encourage us to, to think about when, when we come across somebody who's suffering, somebody who's going through an evil circumstance, just freely admit that we don't have all the answers. You know, when somebody says, why did God let that happen? Of course, we know generally the plan. I mean, the Bible is clear. God is sovereign. Uh, he, he, there's nothing outside his control. He works all things to the council according to his purpose. We see in Ephesians 1. Uh, we, we see that he has this big plan for our good and for his glory. That's, we understand that biblically. But, how immediately does that work out in this situation? So just because we know the general plan doesn't mean immediately we know how losing a spouse, uh, losing, losing a child, uh, losing a job, you know, having this, this chronic sickness, we don't necessarily know how that fits in in the immediate picture. And so it's, it's biblical to just say, you know what? I don't know. Or we don't know. And it's also okay to say we may never know. We may never know this side of heaven why God allowed this to happen. That's okay. Because we're not God. You know, it's interesting. I, I just thought of this, uh, because, well, in class we're, we're approaching Job. So I've been doing some thinking on that. And of course, Job is a classic example of suffering. And one of the interesting things about Job is, Throughout the book, he's he's calling out to God, and um, well, he's 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 calling out in general, saying, "Hey, I've been unjustly treated, and if I could ever talk to God, you know, um, at least I would be able to uh, plead my case for why I'm suffering unjustly." And it's interesting because when God finally appears and sets the record straight, He never tells Job why he suffered. It's so interesting to me because. Because the end of Job, he, he didn't, he didn't fix everything in Job's mind saying, Hey, I just need to let you know that this is why I allowed this to happen. This is why this happened. He doesn't do that with Job. He says, Hey, look at who I am. I'm the creator. I've done all these things. Are you the creator? Have you, were you there when I, when I made all of these, uh, animals and when I created the heavens and all these things? And Job has to take a step back and say, You're right. You are God. I am not. And what an interesting way for the book of Job to end because uh, Job's Job's questions aren't answered. Instead, uh, the ultimate answer is that sometimes you have to let God be God. And it's, it's, it's a tough, tough thing to grapple with because we want answers. But sometimes we need to understand that we may never have those answers. And it's okay. It's okay to admit that. Only a fool would think that he has all the answers. And so I, I just encourage encourage us as we think through that uh, that difficult the any difficult situations that we would be in to to freely admit that we don't have all those answers. And then lastly, I think that this is 
this is really important, is that there are appropriate scriptural truths to to give people who are suffering. And that that could include, as we've already mentioned, uh, God's sovereignty and his control, a reminder of those things, a reminder that God doesn't allow senseless suffering, that all suffering does have a purpose, even though we might not know what it is. That could include that, uh, depending on the timing. But early on, it's probably even more likely that you would have most people need a reminder of God's love for them. They might need a reminder, as Psalm 56 says, that God counts their tears. He puts their tears in the bottle. You know, they need to be reminded that God's not emotionally distant from them, that he doesn't care how they feel. No, God does care. God does pay attention to those things. And he wants to comfort them. And he, he wants to give them the strength to make it through that. That those, those are important things that people need to be reminded of. So from a pastoral perspective, when we have brothers, sisters suffering, when we suffer, we need to be reminded of these things. We need to be reminded of the fact that God is in control. I mean, that, that's, that's why it's so important to study God's sovereignty, study his control, be aware of that before you go into suffering, because that can be the rope, uh, the lifeline upon which we, we hang. Uh, but then also just to understand that we don't have all the answers and also that God actually does care. You know, I, I am reminded uh, of that book by Jerry Bridges. Um, I can't, trusting God is the title. That's right. Trusting God. And what a great, uh, what a great title. And it's basically a discussion of God's sovereignty and of his love. And I, I love how he does that. It, it was a great book, really influential on, on me, uh, in my early, uh, studies. And first part of the book talks about God's sovereignty. And then halfway through the book, he says, but none of that matters if God doesn't love us. And then he goes on to talk about God's love. The fact that God's in control, that should, that's a, that's a blessing that God is in control because we know that God loves us. And so it is, it's a hand in glove kind of fit that God is in control. God does love us. Those are the things we need to be reminded of in a timely way. And we can do that with one another. And sometimes, uh, that can be weeks down the road. Sometimes for the first couple of days, just, just sitting and crying with somebody, uh, giving them a hug, praying for them. That, that can be the best thing that we can do. Bear one another's burdens and help them with that. So that's, uh, just a brief, I think, discussion of just how we interact with this question in the community of believers. And there might be other things we can add to that, but, but now I want to shift gears a little bit and talk more about it from a, from an apologetic point of view. And what I mean by that is that a lot of unbelievers use this question as a as a reason or a means by which they say, "Oh, this is the only this is the reason I couldn't believe in God because it's nonsensical to believe in a loving God who would allow such suffering in the world." In fact, Normally, the argument is phrased something like this, and this is pretty, this is pretty common, so it's not, it's not as if this, this is unique to any author or anything like that, but the first thing is that, okay, let's assume God is all powerful, then that assumption is he would be able to prevent evil, right? And also, if God were all good, then he would desire to prevent evil because a good God would desire to prevent evil. So my conclusion would be that if God is all powerful and all good, there wouldn't be any evil because he's powerful enough to stop it and good enough that he doesn't want it. 
but there is evil. I see evil, therefore there can't be an all-powerful and all-good God, so I reject the God of the Bible. That's how the normal argument would proceed by an unbeliever. It's very, very common. But I want to I want to approach this well, kind of from the side at first to give just a little insight into what's going on here. The first thing that we need to think about, I really believe, is just to have a firm understanding of Romans one. Um, in Romans one, and starting in verse eighteen, we see insight into really the methodology of mankind. And I'm just going to read a couple verses here, uh, starting in verse eighteen. Uh, Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, that's an important starting point. He goes on, I'll come back to that in a second. He goes on in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made so that they are without excuse. And then it goes on to say that although they knew God, they didn't honor him, so on and so forth. They turned away from God, followed their own desires, etc., so if we go back to the beginning part in verse 18, that's really, that's really key. That's the crux of the issue because they say, um, oh, as Paul writes here, the wrath of God is revealed. They see it, but they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness in by their unrighteousness because of their unrighteousness. They are not neutral in the battle. In other words, uh, there's, there's this view, which is wrong. Uh, that is out there that as long as, as long as you can adequately present the truth to an unbeliever, they will be convinced because, uh, because Christianity, the Bible is the most rational thing. So as long as you give the best argument, you can convince anybody. But that's just not true. Not true at all because unbelievers are tainted. Nobody can overcome overcome their bias against God unless the Holy Spirit intervenes. Everybody by nature, as Ephesians 2 says, is a is a child of wrath, resisting God, dead in their trespasses. They can't respond positively to God unless the Holy Spirit renews them, activates uh activates his presence in their life. It's it's not a neutral battle. So I think that's a really important uh, starting point for this whole discussion because we can't convince anyone. If there was a perfect answer for, for this issue to somebody, it still wouldn't convince somebody. And I do think there's an adequate answer, but, but obviously there are complexities like we talked about. We, we don't know the mind of God. We don't know why God does everything. But even if we, for some, for sake of the argument, knew everything that, of why God was doing something, that wouldn't convince somebody because they would use any argument possible, no matter how silly or foolish. They would they would use arguments just to resist God because they are not not neutral. So don't expect to convince anyone by your suave and debonair arguments. Uh, just understand it's not a neutral playing field. Still, I think it's important to think through these issues because we want to defend uh, Christianity and the Bible against the foolish charges. Uh, you know, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. We understand that. But at the same time, it, it helps us because 
because apologetics really is a Christian exercise too. It, it helps solidify our faith saying, you know what, there are adequate answers to these issues. And, and I see how this makes sense. So let's talk about it. Um, why would an all powerful, all good God allow evil? So the assumption that unbelievers are making is that they have the right to define love. Interesting. They have the right to define love. So I would say, first and foremost, that God actually gets to define love. And if truth be told, he gets to define um, whatever he wants because he's God, right? So, And he ends up defining all of those things. God defines love. Love does not define God. That is important. See, See, unbelievers in forming these definitions are taking their picture of what love should look like and imposing it on God, therefore making a God after their own image or after their own likeness in accordance with their own presuppositions and expectations. And so God has the right to define love. Love doesn't define God. Essentially, what's happening then is you're committing just a basic form of idolatry when you're saying that God must follow my definition of what love is. The culture doesn't get to decide what what true love is. So that's that's the first thing uh, in response to that. Second thing we need to understand is that when we think about love uh, from the perspective of, is God loving? Well, the Bible says God is loving, but, and this is an important but, God's love is not equal. What do I mean by that? I mean that God loves in different ways. And praise the Lord for this because uh, it would actually be impossible if, well, it's actually impossible for God to love everybody and everything the exact same. That's just, that's just not true. In fact, scripture paints the exact opposite picture uh scripture says uh for example in john 5 20 through 23 that the premier object of god's love is jesus christ and obviously god displays this by giving the son judgment over the entire world giving the son a worldwide kingdom Uh, god doesn't want the best for everyone otherwise everyone would be essentially equal with jesus christ in receiving all the honors all the glories all the roles of jesus christ but obviously that's not true correct the Son uh, is the premier object of God's love, and because God loves the Son, he loves us because we're found in Christ. And so that's a huge blessing. Obviously, that's, I mean, you, you just have to read through something like Ephesians 1, and you see how the believer's identity is completely combined with who Christ is because God loves Christ, because we are affiliated, we are in Christ, therefore uh, we receive those blessings. You know, in an interesting uh, book, and it's it's a very it's a very provocative title. D. A. Carson wrote a book uh, that was entitled "The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God." Isn't that interesting? The difficult doctrine of the love of God, and, and he, it was based on some lectures he gave in 1998, and he said. In the introduction, he said, now, most of you who are hearing this lecture or whatever or reading the book uh, understand, like, think I'm crazy for saying that the love of God is a difficult doctrine. But uh, 
It is. And then he goes on to explain why it's so difficult because there's complexity to the love of God. And he actually talks about five different kinds of love for God. So I'm just going to list them. Maybe one day we'll talk more in detail about this subject. But just to our overall point is that um, all love is not equal. Um, love by God, uh, love coming from God is not all equal. He lists these five different kinds. Obviously, like we already talked about, love for for the Son from the Father and love from the Son for the Father. That's that's one unique kind of love. The second kind of love is God's providential love for all of creation. Obviously, God cares and and, and um, takes care of His creation and cares for it. Uh, number three, God's love for the fallen world. You know, we quote John 3.16 all the time, for God so loved the world. Well, you know, in John's writing, uh, world cosmos has the idea of the fallen world system. It's badness, if you will. Uh, number four, God clearly has a special love for the elect. I mean, God doesn't love unbelievers and, and believers the same. I mean, that's very clear. You have a scriptural testament to that. But it, interestingly enough, and, and I hadn't really thought too much about this, but it, uh, I mean, it makes sense. And obviously it's right there in scripture. The fifth, uh, kind of different love that God has is God's special love for obedient believers. You know, and I think Jude 21 speaks to that where, uh, Jude, uh, tells believers to stay in the love of God, keep themselves in the love of God. And that doesn't make sense, uh, unless you could jump out of the love of God. Uh, and it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Obviously, uh, as a father loves his children, so God loves us, and those who are disobedient are loved in different ways, which result in uh, chastisement, discipline, and things like that. So all that to say, now we took a very circuitous route, but all that to say that there's there's different definitions of love, and we can't assume that our definition of love is the supreme definition. So when somebody says, "Oh, well, God, if God were loving, He would never allow evil or bad things," uh, says who? I mean, that's that's a huge assumption that you just made on your definition of what love is and and what uh, God has to and, and can't do. I mean, just in reality, just objectively, that's what, that's what we're doing. I mean, that's, there's, there's no basis for that argument. So those are the first two things is, is kind of correcting our idea of what love really is. But third or challenging, I should say challenging, not necessarily correcting because, um, because I, I'm well, correcting could work too. Why not? Correcting, challenging, um, but third, and this is where I think um, most atheists, um, non-Christians really kind of struggle in, in this area, and that's the realization that in a world without God, there actually can't be evil. In a world without God, there can't be evil. So, it, it, and this is interesting, and I would go a step further, too, and say, Obviously, evil's the the um, the target of many of these uh, atheists or non-believers who who challenge the Bible this way. But I would go a step further and say also the definition of goodness. There can't actually be good without God either, and the reason for that is because if there's no creator and no rules by which the world must operate, there can't be right or wrong. I mean, okay, so usually, I mean. I actually can't imagine a a different scenario, but an atheist uh, 
pretty much has to believe in evolution. I mean, that's, that's gotta be the go-to. Otherwise it's, it's not really quote academically acceptable or anything like that. So if you believe in an evolutionary worldview, who's to say there is right or wrong? Who's to say, like, how do you define that? There's no way to define evil. There's no way to, to define what's good. There's no way to define what's evil because uh, the, all the rules are gone. And maybe what's right for me is to kill you and to take what you own so that I can have more stuff and survive better because I am more fit than you. I am a survival of the fittest kind of person. And so that's my version of right. Or, uh, think of it this way, um, because, and well, one way that people will try to get around this is that they will say, okay, well, evil is a matter of cultural consensus, they'll say. The culture kind of decides it. Okay, let's, let's take that argument then. So you're saying that the Holocaust was okay, right? Because if the cultural consensus for, for the Germans and for how they were operating in their mini empire, um, was that the Jews needed to be exterminated because the Aryan race was supreme. So that's okay, right? Or, uh, and this is also, uh, interesting because, you know, given the cultural debate on homosexuality, uh, you know, talking to people saying, well, so you're saying homosexuality was wrong before it was right. Is that what you're saying? Because it used to be a plurality, a large percentage said that homosexuality was wrong. And so if we're saying cultural consensus is the issue, you have to admit that homosexuality used to be wrong. And then now it's okay. So people never want to do that, obviously, because they don't want to go against, uh, go against the cultural fads. So they would have to say, no, it was always okay. And we just finally got it. So you, you see, they have to be inconsistent. There's no basis, uh, without God in the picture, without a creator who, who institutes moral right and good and moral evil. Uh, there's no way, there's no way to tell between, between the two. It's all subjective without those constant regulations and rules. And so good and evil can't be properly distinguished unless we have that standard, which God himself gives in his revelation, in his word. And so, you know, when somebody says, oh yeah, I would believe in God, except for the fact that, you know, the problem of evil, if God was good and loving and, and, and all powerful, he would never do that. You know, uh, one of the things that is pretty easy to, to, I guess, jump in for a fun little argument is to say, okay, let's, let's go ahead and, uh, use that argument. Okay. So if there is no God, then how do you define evil and good? Because it seems that an atheistic worldview has exactly the same problem except compounded because it can't define anything. It can't define evil. It can't define good. It can't define morality. It can't define anything objectively because anything, everything becomes subjective in an atheistic worldview, evolutionary worldview where everything's changing. It's, it's a mess. And so, uh, it's encouraging when an atheist actually admits that and they say, you know what? You're right. And, you know, this is terrible, but most people don't want to do that because, they are clinging to the fact that no, there has to be an objective right and wrong. And that's how they live their life because God's designed them that way. They're just in rebellion to that. They're just in rebellion and turning their back on how God has designed creation. 
And so I just want to bring us back to where we began this apologetic section that the real issue is that an unbeliever is suppressing the truth about God and they are rebelling against him, turning their back on him. And this is just one way in which they can, they can do that. They can, they can throw out more objections, more objections. The more the merrier, uh, to try to resist God. And that's, that's because they're not playing on a neutral, uh, neutral field. They, they are actively resisting their creator. And I think from a Christian perspective, we don't have all the answers in the sense that we can't always understand why God does what he does. But that's okay because the Bible at least explains to us why we don't have to understand everything because God is God and we are not. So that's in one sense, uh, it's we don't solve all the issues, but scripture doesn't expect us to that. That's the beauty of it is that we can be honest and say, you know what? The worldview which we have makes sense of evil in the sense that we at least understand why it exists and why good exists and why the world operates the way it does. The biblical worldview is the most consistent worldview. Now that doesn't, that doesn't give us all the answers because we're not God, but that's okay because we aren't God. And so even though you may have been listening to this uh, episode looking for all the answers or something like that, I, I hope this was at least helpful in pointing out the different the different ways to think through this issue and uh, challenge unbelievers who challenge you with this argument, you know, use a counter challenge saying, okay, well, let's follow this, this line of reasoning. And you're actually not solving any problems by raising a challenge. And the biblical worldview does provide an adequate response to account for these things, even if it doesn't solve the answer the way that, that you as an unbeliever would like. So anyway, I hope this is helpful. Hope it gives food for thought. Obviously, it's a complex issue and we can't talk through everything today, but I hope it was just a good, a good discussion to try to keep the, keep the mind running. Thanks for listening. Email me your comments or questions. You can email me at peter at petergaiman.com. If you want more information on the podcast or about me, go ahead and visit petergaiman.com. If you want more information on Shepherd Seminary, visit shepherds.edu. Until next time.